Salam and hello everyone. Welcome to Uproot. My name is Lily Bakala Piper and I am so glad you're here and happy Black History Month. I hope you have taken time this month to read, reflect, watch movies, sing, dance and celebrate all the beautiful things um, about Black History Month. For me, as an Ethiopian-American, Black history has been something that was really central to my understanding of both my American identity, but also to appreciate the legacy of resilience and brilliance of the African-American community in the United States. And this year, as the month approached, I really started to think about what are the connections between Kenya, which is my home now, and Black History Month in the United States, and the stories that really cross continents and cross generations. So today on Uproot, I am really delighted to have Professor Samuel Nyanchoga with me today to talk about Black History Month in the context of East Africa. Professor Nyanchoga holds a BA and a master's in history from Nairobi University and a PhD in history from Kenyatta University. He was a Fulbright Scholar at Boston College and is currently the Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at Catholic University of East Africa. He's also a Research Fellow at the Knott Institute of Advanced Studies in France and is the past recipient of the European Commission Research Award. He served as the Director of the Institute for Regional Integration and Development and is a Commissioned Historian for General Labor History of Africa under the ILO and Institute of Social History in Amsterdam. In the past, Professor Nyanchoka has served as the chair of the Kenyan American Studies Association, and his research focus is on gender, conflict, peace studies, and the historical and political processes of Africa. He is also the author of seven books, which I highly encourage you to find. Um, and his most recent book that he just gifted me this morning, thank you, Professor, is called From Citizenship to Ethnicity. Politics of Identity, Belonging, and Otherness in Kenya. It's my privilege and with great gratitude that I welcome Professor Samuel Nyanchoga to Uproot today. Welcome, Professori. Thank you. So glad to have you here. So Black History Month started many, many years ago in the United States, almost 100 years ago, and it's something that has now really gained attention. It's celebrated in actually Canada, I think, in the, in the United Kingdom as well. Let me ask you, what was your first exposure to Black History Month? And, and what was your reaction to this idea that a whole month was set aside to observe the contributions of Black Americans? Thank you for that equation. As a, as a student of history at Kenyatta University uh, in 2000, I, I was a lecturer and also a student teaching American history. This was the first time that I encountered the, the Black History Month. Um, I also served as, a, as, a, as the chair of the Kenya American Studies Association, and we worked closely with the American Embassy. And as the chair, we did a lot of you know, celebration where we invited students from universities to come together so that we can have an encounter on the, um, the Black History Month. So it goes back to my student days at the university. And what was your first reaction when you heard that in the United States this was something that people observed? Did it, how did you find that idea as an intellectual engagement or as an intellectual exercise? What did you think of it? Well, I thought about the Black History Month as a, 
as a register of human progress, as a reflection of what the black people went through, uh, through the days of slavery, uh, in the making of the American history. I thought that the black history meant uh, as two aspects. In my own understanding and thinking about the black history meant, I thought that there were two aspects to it. One was actually the separation of African history from the mainstream of the American history. I started becoming very critical of this history. Why must we really celebrate the Black History Month from the universal American history? And I thought that it was a process of separating blackness from the mainstream of the American history. But over the years, I've come to appreciate that Black History Month is actually part and parcel of the American history. It is part of the mainstream of the American history. It is a reflection of what the black people have gone through, and therefore it becomes part and parcel of that history and the making of the, the USA history. You, you make a great point, though, Professor, about this idea. I think people are still asking, why is this necessary? Why is it important? And you know, if we look back at why it was created in, in 1926 by Carter G. Woodson and he was, you know, many people know W. D. Boyce was the first African American to get a PhD from Harvard, and Carter G. Woodson was the second. He's the son of enslaved persons, and I think he had the same observation as you. Actually, where is Black history in history? It wasn't there, you know. Even though it is part and parcel, it wasn't reflected. So this week, you know, is created to make us stop and think and pause and and reflect and engage. And you make a great point, though, of of you know. Why was it founded and why do we continue with it? Because maybe those reasons are different now, the reason why it started and why it continues. Uh, I didn't ask, I didn't prepare you for this question, but I'd be curious from your perspective as an academic, as a teacher, why do you think it's important that we continue to celebrate black history? It becomes very necessary for us to continuously celebrate this history as a reflection of where humanity has come from the lessons that we learn that can assist us to uh, understand the present and make decisions about the future of the human of, of the human destiny. For me, the continuous repression of the Black History Month is very important. It's very central in understanding where the Black people, the African Americans, have come from, the challenges that they have undergone through, and how they have been able to navigate through that treacherous history up to the present, and what the decisions that can help them uh, to inform the future. So let's, let's maybe pivot and think about black history in the context of Kenya. I'd love to hear from you, who are the heroes, both of Kenya, but also of the continent, that we need to elevate in our history? Who are those heroes that maybe we miss? You know, we know Nelson Mandela, it's easy for us to look at you know, the stories of other leaders in our, our own Wangari Mathai, but there have been so many heroes within history. Who would you elevate to the forefront of these celebrations? In the context of, uh, of Africa, we have very many heroes. We have people like Nelson Mandela, as you have said. We have people like Nyerere on African socialism. We have people like Kenneth Kaunda on humanism. We have Milton Oporte on the Common Man's Charter. We have Desmond Tutu, okay? Uh, we also have uh, uh, Abdel Nasser of e Egypt on, uh, on um, Arab nationalism. These are some of the heroes who have played a very important role 
you know, in charting the destiny of the African continent. Even Wangari Madai, an environmentalist, is a very important crusader of human rights in the context of conservation of the environment. So Africa is actually has a register of heroes that we can learn from in order to take this continent forward. I'm curious to know, in your history courses, as you're teaching young students now here, you're a professor here at Catholic University of East Africa, when you're designing a curriculum about the history of Kenya or, or broader, what are the stories that you place like at the front and center in order to help your students really appreciate and understand history? And as you said, in order to inform the future and to order to inform our present day activity, what are the stories that you really centralize in your teaching? Thank you very much for that question. In fact, that question is very important uh, in designing of the history curriculum, not only in Kenya, but across Africa. We are not necessarily concerned with the content alone, memory, because many people assume that history is about memory. History is not about memory. History is about application of that knowledge in order to be able to make informed decisions about the present and the future. Uh, some of the issues that we consider very, very closely are issues of patriotism, for example. Can we learn from history about patriotism, the heroes of, uh, of our past history? What values do we learn? Do we learn the values of nationalism? Do we learn the values of um, identity? Do we learn about the values of, uh, of morality from our, past from our past history? Do we learn about issues of leadership and integrity? These are some of the issues that inform our history. For example, if we are teaching about the history of Mau Mau, which is the history of resistance, we don't teach it as a history of resistance. We teach it in the context of how people can be able to resist bad governments, for example because Mau Mau was resistance towards colonial oppression. So the lessons that we learn from that is that how do our students therefore continuously apply historical knowledge to be able to understand and be able to identify some of the current bad leadership and how they can resist that or how they can reform them. For example, we teach about colonialism and governance in Africa. Okay, colonialism is understood as one of the most, you know, brutalized systems of governance. So the application that we insist on our students is that uh, even when we are being governed by the present systems of governance, are we able to identify bad systems and how do we reform them? Do we reform them through violence or do we reform them through constitutional making processes? So let me ask you something there. That yes. you said, thank you for bringing that up. What do we learn from the Mau Mau? What is the lesson? And, and maybe I'll ask you to take it personally. What have you learned? What do you take from that movement of resistance as a lesson that we should apply today? Uh, people have the ability to resist bad governance. People have the responsibility to change systems of government. People are able, if they are united, if they come together, they can change bad systems of governance. Remember, Mao Mao was, a, was not necessarily an ethnic Kikuyu movement. 
it was a nationalist movement resisting colonialism in terms of you know uh, land alienation, uh, heavy taxation, uh, oppressive you know laws. So Africans came together to resist colonial system, and together with the other constitutional means, they were able you know to deliver independence to the Kenyans. So for us, therefore, you know, independence is a continuous struggle as a student of history. Uh, governance can still be reformed and people should be at the center of changing systems of government. You, you make a great point that independence, we continue to struggle for independence. We are not yet free. And in fact, this year marks the 60th anniversary of 16 countries in Africa gaining independence. And there's been some writing that's happening in academic circles about what does it mean now 60 years post-independence of the kind of the first countries to really move into that. Where are we? You know, what have we learned? What have we gained? What do, where, what do we still have to pursue in terms of, like you said, good governance or in full uh, realization of independence, the full actualization of our independence? Where do you think we are as a continent? You know, where are we in that arc of history since those 60 years have passed? Thank you very much. You look at Africa, and many people argue that uh, we only received the flag independence. We only look at our flag, and we think we are independent. But then, in terms of, uh, you know, sovereignty, decision-making, many people argue that we are not independent. Do you uh, agree with that? Yeah. To a greater extent, I agree that uh, Africa's systems of governance are not fully decolonized. We are in the process of decolonization. Independence may have been achieved in the 1960s, but you know, this is a continuous struggle. We look at it in the context of decolonization. How do we make sure that we are fully independent as an African continent or as African nations? And I feel that uh, you know, in terms of governance structures, we are in the process of becoming independent. And this is a struggle that must be taken by the people, but not necessarily by the leaders. People must continuously struggle to ensure that they are at the top of the decision making. In that way, then we can, we can therefore argue that we are independent. So independence to you is that when the people really are driving decisions, creating policy, and economic and cultural norms serve the people. So, so what would, how would Kenya look different if we had, when we fully actualize independence? And, and maybe it's not fair to ask about just Kenya, but philosoph philosophically, how would maybe the region look different if we had really achieved fullness of independence? Thank you very much. Um, sometimes I take a, a Marxist orientation of the politics of independence in Africa. And if you are familiar with the, the Leninist uh, uh, philosophy, he calls the African leaders as compradors. Compradors are people who are in power in Africa, not necessarily for the interests of their people, but to serve the interests of their foreign masters. You travel through the political geography of Africa, that is what you find. Then we ask the question, are we independent if our leaders are not serving the interests of the people? How do we become independent? The only way we can become independent is when the masses of Africa assume full control of the decision-making. 
one of the ways perhaps we can argue is that uh, if we devolve systems of governance and give people uh, the power to make decisions, we empower the people, then we can move towards the process of actualizing independence. But again here, there are the pitfalls. When we, de when we devolve systems of governance, who takes over governance structures in a devolved units? It's against the political elites, and then we find that the masses are at the periphery of decision making. And this is one of the things that African people must continuously be watchful about. We must continuously struggle to ensure that really decision-making policy is driven by people. Resource allocation benefits the people. That way, we can therefore assume that Africa then becomes fully independent. But at the moment, uh, the, the struggle continues. Well, so much of what you said to me is directly connected to why Black History Month is so important. Because when we pause and look at both the journey of um, African-Americans from 400 years when the first enslaved person landed on the shores of Virginia to now, this idea of people being at the forefront, it's all about representation. It's are we represented in the systems of government, in systems of education, in systems of economies? Are we present at the table when those decisions are made? And without reflecting on our history, without tracking our progress, without remember, remembering the struggle, then I think we, we can become complacent in where we are. And I can see that complacency both living on the continent again as a part of the diaspora, and also when I am in the United States as my, my second or even my first home. I see that both that, that there. And so let me ask you, you know, what perhaps when we, when we look back again at the connection between the continent and the United States and this legacy of Black history and the legacy of, you know, hundreds of years of contributions, what do we maybe misunderstand or what do we not know about the connection between the continent? I think we all default to the transatlantic slave trade and we think, okay, we, we know the history. But recently when I, when actually the time I met you was at this film discussion for this documentary that was being broadcast in France, examining different routes of economic trade in the continent that depended on the labor of enslaved persons. And that film really highlighted how devastating it was to the African continent, but also the tremendous wealth that was accumulated. So, sorry, you can tell I also maybe want to be a professor because I'm just talking, talking. But <laughs> I guess I want to ask you, what do we miss? You know, we know about this transatlantic business, but what do we miss? And what is it, why is it important that we remember, the, you know, in that connection between our two places? Thank you very much. You know, the assumption that we always make in history is that Africa as a global connection with Europe and America is in the context of slave trade. And of course, transatlantic slave trade is at the center of this global connection. Um, but over the years, we need to understand that um, Africa's connection with Europe and America must also be understood within the context of global struggles. The, the Black History Month in the USA, for instance, is the manifestation of the black people to be independent, to struggle for racial equality, to struggle for inclusiveness, to struggle for economic and political empowerment. And it so happened that, you know, 
at the center of the Black History Month and the, you know, the civil rights movement, Africa was also going through the process of decolonization. In fact, if you go through the extract speeches of Martin Luther King Jr., he was saying that uh, the cries in Atlanta, Georgia, the cries in Accra, Ghana, the cries in uh, Nairobi, Kenya, the cries in, uh, you know, in, uh, in other parts of Africa are the cries of freedom. The cry is the same both in America and in Africa. So that therefore lays the logical connection be between the Black History Month in the USA and the African, you know, liberation struggles. In fact, the civil rights movement, if you look at, uh, you know, people like, uh, you know, William Du Bois, for example, uh, he was in the first Pan-African Congress. He was a Pan-Africanist. If you look at uh, people like uh, T. Washington, they supported, you know, the liberation struggles in Africa. Uh, you look at people like Tom Boyer, uh, you know, the, <clears throat> the airlifts to the USA and, you know, J.F. Kennedy was by then the senator and then became the president. Uh, you find that there was that, you know, strong historical connection between Africa and the USA because they were all fighting for liberation. So liberation struggles therefore became a global agenda and therefore it, it interconnected all these continents, you know, the American continent and the African continent. Thank you for, for mentioning that. I am recently coming to some of these connections that I didn't know before. Um, you know, in particular, I read recently that Thurgood Marshall, the first African-American to be on the Supreme Court, actually was a part of Tom and Boya's uh, team at the Kenya Constitutional Conference in 1960, where the constitution that would then support independence three years later was drafted. And he was a part of the delegation with Mboya to, to draft that. And I was really moved by that connection. And I think you're absolutely right that we are connected. There is this shared blackness that whether we find ourselves on our own soil here in East Africa or on our own soil in the East Coast of the United States. We are, there is a struggle, there's a shared unity that we do, we, we do share. And let me ask you, do you still see those connections today? You know, um, that Mboya connection was really recently in, in this play, Too Early for Birds. They did a beautiful job of really showing us and telling the story of Mboya. And I think it was an education for many of us who went and saw that show what those ties were to the United States. And, and do you feel like we still have those healthy, strong ties that are struggling together? Thank you very much for that question. Uh, let me begin by saying that uh, blackness is a universal civilization. In that fact- is beautiful. <clears throat> blackness is a universal civilization. Say it again, Professor. I love it. <laughs> blackness is a, is a universal civilization. And now I want to take you to the teachings of uh, Trevor Robert in the 1960s at the University of Oxford when his students asked him to teach African history. And the thing is said that there is no uh, African history. What exists in Africa is European history. The rest is darkness, and darkness is not the subject of history. So we must understand blackness in the context of, uh, of racial history that blackness is void. Blackness does not necessarily contribute towards, 
towards uh, uh, towards civilization, towards progress. So the rise of black conscious movement, both in the USA and in Africa, must be understood that it was creating a connection among the people to understand that blackness does not necessarily mean inferiority. Blackness means universal Negro civilization. And, in, and indeed, Africa is actually the center of the world. Civilization actually began in Africa, and that African epistemology or African knowledge is, is a universal epistemology. So it is really Africa that informs the entire of the world. Amen. Mm. Okay, sorry. Mm. Let me okay. I cut you off, but I, <laughs> I think that needs to be said over and over again. You know, number one, our history did not start with the slave routes. Yes. We were the first civilizations, yes. and that history mm -hmm. needs to be what people start with. Yes. But continue, yeah. Professor. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the connection between the USA and Africa really is a long historical process. We can trace it from the civil rights movement. We can trace it with the history of Pan-Africanism. People like William Du Bois, people like Booker T. Washington were very, very central in the Pan-African history of the 1950s in Africa. And it really continued in the context, you know, that America is seen as one of the nations that is, is at the central of giving liberties to humanity. They took it upon themselves to assist the other countries that were under the yoke of colonialism to become independent. Remember the, 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 the American Declaration of Independence of 1776, and afterwards, America became at the center of promoting the liberties of humanities across the world. So it continued during the civil rights movement, uh, it continued during the Pan-Africanist movement, it continued during the, you know, the airlift movement in Africa, particularly with Kenya, and that connection actually exists even up today. And we can look at it in the context of the process of democratization of the African continent as one of the most important pillars of connecting the USA and Africa. Explain to us what that means. I think for, explain, say more about what is, what is that principle, what is that? Okay, the principle of democracy is one of the most important pillars that underlie the American history and American ideology. From the 1990s, America was at the very center of insisting that African countries must democratize. From 1990s, we see a democratic wave across the African continent, the rise of multipartism. America was at the center of that. Over the years, we have seen the American, uh, the, the American government supporting and assisting countries in Africa to create institutions of governance that give meaning to the people. And even up to now, even Obama, the, you know, the, the former president of the USA, has, has an African connection. So that connection has always been there since the 1950s. It, has, it was there during the time of slavery. It was there during the time of the decolonization of the African content, continent. It was also there during the time of the democratization of the African continent. So that connection, although it has taken different shades and meaning, that connection with the USA is always there. Thank you for that. I, I want to talk, shift gears a little bit and talk briefly about our connections around culture and art and expression of blackness. 
You know, in the 1960s and 70s, this phrase, black is beautiful, really started to gain momentum. People started to wear their hair natural and wear afros and dashikis. And really, there was this longing to connect with the African roots. You know, people were even encouraged to start learning uh, languages uh, indigenous to the continent. So Swahili was one of those languages that people put forward. When I say people, I mean academics who were kind of leading this, this movement. There was this desire to connect with the continent. And part of that, I think, is in recognition of our history and the, and the ties that we are inseparable. There is this shared blackness. When you think about those cultural connections that are, um, I really think it's more on the African-American end, trying to connect back to the continent, What's your impression of that? Is there need for a movement perhaps in reverse where we on the continent try and reach back the other direction? Recently, Ghana had the year of return where they really, you know, both from a political and policy level as well as down to an entertainment level, really encouraged African-Americans to come back. They made it easy to get visas. They encouraged people. They really created a campaign. You know, is, is, there, is there a time now maybe for us on the eastern side of the continent to do the same, to reach back and say, come home. There is this black is beautiful and that's still true and, we, and there's a connection we need to continue to explore. I don't know. What are your thoughts on that? I, I think that is, a, that is very thoughtful of you. If you travel through Africa, you begin even from Egypt, the pyramids are there. You look at the African religious systems. You look at West Africa, African kingdoms existed long distance straight. You look at Central Africa, there were indeed impressive kingdoms like the Kingdom of Congo, that when the Portuguese came in, actually, they established diplomatic relations with the, with the Kingdom of Congo. So blackness must be elevated to explain that Africa as a place in human history. And indeed, therefore, as Africans, we have a duty to promote blackness and black history, to reach out to Africa, to reach out to Europe, to reach out to America and say, here, this is our history. We have something that we need to share. You know, Africans in the diaspora have allowed also to pray in promoting, you know, the black history, black literature, black music, black, you know, uh, diet, uh, and other forms of blackness that is an expression of we, of who we are as black people. Thank you, Professor. And that's a good place, I think, for me to, to ask you what has been on my mind since we, we started talking, really, um, which is, you know, if you were, and you've, you've written seven books, so you think about history and its importance all the time. You've been able to expand on your theories. But if you had to start a history book, about black history, and you've already said it's a universal experience. Where does that history start for you? What is the first thing that you would include in that book? The first thing that I will, continue, I will talk about is the universality of blackness. If you look at the African continent, today is a continent that is dismembered by issues of ethnicity, issues of, issues of bad leadership, and in fact, in my last book uh, that I've written from citizenship to ethnicity, it, it, it's like it's a cry of the challenges of, of nation building and nationhood in Africa. 
this is not an, this is not only a problem in Kenya. This is a problem in Africa. You look at Kenya, for example. We have been divided into, into ethnic contours, whereby we have ethnic hegemonies that continuously, you know, dominate the corridors of power, disadvantaging other smaller ethnic groups. Politics, resource allocation, political appointments, public sector appointments, they are mostly determined by the forces of ethnicity to the extent that citizenship is no longer a universal quality that we can use to gain access to either public office or to you know, rights that we are entitled to as a citizen of a given country. Now, ethnicity in Africa is gaining more currency. So my thinking and my thoughts as an historian is that Africa needs to look at its structures of nation building. You know, we focus more on issues of citizenship. We focus more on issues of governance, issues of good leadership so that we can, prom pro we can promote a continent that is more responsive to the needs of the people. Thank you, thank you. So two last questions. Um, back to my question about if you were writing a book. You know, I have, I have four kids and I'm, we're always trying to teach them history, not just from what they get in school, but especially what they don't get in school. Those movements, uh, you know, stories of Timbuktu and Mali or Amakal Cabral and Cap Verde or these leaders, these movements that are so important for them to understand. If you have to highlight that person or that movement or that kingdom or that story that you think you must know this if you are part of this universal black experience, what is that story or that person that we must know? We must know that uh, black history is the universal history of the world. That uh, African knowledge is a universal epistemology that Africa is the world today. Without Africa, there is no world because all civilizations began from Africa and they spread elsewhere. So we are at the center of the international system. We actually give in terms of humanity, in terms of knowledge to the rest of the world. With that in mind, who is your favorite person or figure in black history worldwide? I'm a great admirer of William Du Bois. Say more, tell me why. A Pan-Africanist. Promoting cultural consciousness, promoting uh, African, African culture. Because if you look at the history of William Du Bois and others, you know, their, their history were intricately tied to slavery. These uh, people were liberated, and therefore they became at the center stage of black history in the USA. So they taught, they, they taught the people that, you know, there is something good in blackness, that blackness has a value in human history. And we are not looking at blackness in terms of color. We are looking at blackness in terms of ideas in terms of the contribution that the black people have made towards the human history. And therefore, to me, these are the people that I admire in my teaching of American history 
or in the black uh, i mean in black uh, in black uh, in black history so now i have to be forced to ask you a follow up to say okay so we have du bois is a uh, for sure one of my heroes as well and we were just talking about him last night with dinner with my kids actually about double consciousness and how that's still relevant 2020 we're still very much exercising double consciousness in our day-to-day -day lives but what about on the continent give us a hero that you haven't mentioned already that we can celebrate this Black History Month? I think uh, another person that I really admire is Franz Fanon. Okay. Uh, Franz yes. Fanon, the rage of the earth. Yes. Okay. Uh, he also talks about uh, black skin, white mask. Uh, he talks of the double consciousness, in fact, that you are talking about, that African people, they, you know, they are a, a, an imitation of whiteness. But, you know, these are black people, but inside them, they are an imitation of whiteness. And therefore, this is a calling to all, you know, people of the African continent to relook at their history, to begin a renaissance of African history, to begin to look inward into the richness of Africa and promote this richness into a universal history that we can be celebrated, you know, universally. Thank you for that. Mm, yeah. Last question, then I'll let you go. It's a middle of the school day, so I know there are other things to do. But do you think that there will ever be a time where we don't need to celebrate black history, where we don't, in the United States, need to stop, take a, a month and really think and reflect and intentionally engage with this history? Will there ever be a time where that's not relevant? That time will only come if there is no humanity, because history is part and parcel of humanity. To stop celebrating our past history is to negate the values of who we are. And in fact, they argue that a nation without a history has no future. So we must continuously reflect on our past history so that it can inform our present and help us to make informed decisions about the future. So that history is who we are, and therefore we cannot detach ourselves from our history. In fact, the most important thing is not even to look at, you know, the Black History Month as an American, you know, as an American movement. We need to universalize that because we have very strong connections with, you know, with the USA that actually goes back to the time of slave trade. So humanity is intricately connected. So the best thing to do is universalize this, and therefore create what we call a rethinking or a renaissance of black history. Thank you, Professor Nyanchogo. That is just fantastic, and I'm so grateful for your time today. Thank you for being on Uproot. Thank you so much, listeners, for tuning in today, and thank you to Professor Nyanchogo for his insights. Basically, he's given us a lot of homework today, y'all. He's given us a list of people to Google, to inquire about if we don't know them already, to be students of history so that we can be better citizens today. As always, I love hearing from you, so hit me up on Instagram or Facebook at Uproot the Podcast. On Twitter, you can find me at Uproot and Lil, L-I-L-L. And folks, I hope you'll be joining us um, in the upcoming month of March. We've got so many things going for you. And in particular, I want to invite you to the Africa Podfest happening March 12th and 13th. You can find all the details at africapodfest.com. There's a great lineup of 
speakers and producers. And if you're a young podcaster, it's a great way to meet the community and get engaged with really podcasters from all over the continent. If you are experienced and you just want to see who else is in the ecosystem, come out, make connections, network. It's March 12th and 13th. You can find all the details at africapodcast.com. And there's a little rumor that I will have a live show on March 13th. So more details on that, but I hope to see you there. As we always close and say, you have to keep at it until it becomes rooted. And I hope all of us will keep at our history, keep at our learning so that we are deeply rooted into this beautiful place. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.